Welcome to Madang Podcast. I'm so excited to have Dr. Trip Fuller with me today. He is a postdoc research fellow in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh. Today, he discusses his homebrew Christianity podcast, what open and relational theology is, Christology is not a spectator doctrine, God refuses to be God without us, and discussions of evil, harm, and suffering, and so much more. Please stay tuned. This week's sponsor is Homebrewed Christianity's open online class, Oh God, What Now? Christianity 20 Years After 9-11, featuring Diana Butler Bass and Brian McLaren. It has been 20 years since 9-11 and the shape of Christianity continues to change at a daunting speed. That's why Homebrewed Christianity invited two of the most trusted and influential voices to explore the most pressing challenges and opportunities for the church. To learn more and join over 1,000 others in the group, head to ohgodwhatnow.net. Fortunately, this group is pay-what-you-can, and you can join at any time to get the video and audio of each session. Mandy Ford is an artist and teacher specializing in hope-filled products, including stickers and art prints, digital and printable products, and creative courses to help your soul live a happier life. She is also the founder of Soul Care Creatives Club, a monthly membership club offering creative resources for soul care. Find out more at www.mandyford.co, follow her on her social media at MandyFordArt, and visit her shop at MandyFordArt.etsy.com. Invisible, published by Fortress Press, is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Show your support and pre-order your copy today. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang. I'm so excited to have my new guest today, Dr. Trip Fuller. He's a postdoctoral research fellow in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh. He received his PhD in philosophy, religion, and theology at Claremont Graduate University. Tripp is the founder and host of Homebrewed Christianity podcast and is the author of two books, um, Jesus, Lord, Liar, Lunatic, or Awesome, and Divine Investment, an open and relational constructive Christology. And he also produced a movie, the Road to Edmund, which you can all watch. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm hoping to watch it one of these well, days. We'll find so, out if you get in trouble after you watch it, if you regret <laughs> mentioning it. Why would I get in trouble, Trip? Well, it has some inappropriate religious humor in it. And, you know, it it would be it's revealing as to someone's sense of humor if they appreciate it or not. Oh, okay. Well, welcome. And I hope maybe we, we can talk a little bit about your uh, movie, your podcast, and of course, your book. Before we do that, I just wanted to say that, you know, you've got wonderful people are saying wonderful things about your book. So um, Philip Clayton says the ambitious Christology marks Trip Fuller as one of the most significant young systematic theologians to emerge on the scene in recent years. Uh, Monica Coleman says Trip Fuller master, masterfully engages the crucial Christian question, who do we say Jesus is? Engaging history, philosophy, and theology, uh, Fuller offers a vision of Jesus that weds evangelical convictions with progressive insights. So these are wonderful things that people are saying about your book. So I can't wait uh, for you to share more about your book. But before we do that, tell me about your podcast, Homebrewed Christ uh, Christianity, because I've been on it several times. You are the number one uh, podcast in theology, which is actually, that's quite amazing, Trip. So tell us how you began and how it is. I know it consumes much of your life, but you have reached <laughs> so many thousands and thousands of people. And I must add that I got invited to the American, I got invited to speak at the American Church 
in Paris because of my interview on your podcast. So I just find that so incredible. And I hope that they will invite me again. But tell, well, tell us about your podcast. Well, I'm glad you got to go to Paris. And yes. um, <laughs> the, I, I, I started the podcast with my best friend, Chad, when we were in divinity school. Um, that was uh, at Wake Forest University's divinity school. And we had a theology pub group. And uh, surprisingly, only the divinity students that were members of it actually read the books before gathering. Everyone else just came to the brewery because it was a brewery. And it was weird because, and you've had this experience where they know you're a professor, they know you're a minister, you show up and if they haven't read it, they just let you teach. And then you go, no, 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 the whole goal was us to actually talk. Like, I want to think with you. So I thought, what if I interview the authors and then send them rewritable CDs? This was all in 2008. I wow. burned CDs for the group and would send it. Chad, my best friend that I started with, he, he goes, Trip, you, you know, there's this new thing called podcasts. And I'm like, I don't like technology. And he's like, no, 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 you got to listen to this. Like, it's an RSS feed, which is, you know, what a podcast gets delivered on. He explains it to me. And I'm like, so I don't have to burn CDs anymore? No. So we moved, we, the first four or five episodes were things I'd done for the reading group. And then we just kept doing it. Um, and that was, you know, through my PhD till after all the way to today. And I think because it was an early adopter, there weren't other competition, you know, like basically all the other theology podcasts were fundamentalist or like the kind of Catholics that don't like Francis, you know, like that was who the options were. So if you liked being inclusive, didn't want to kill the planet and were down for justice, we were the only option for like 10 years. So we, we that's how we got, I think, you know, where we were. And then because I was in the guild, I kept meeting cool theologians and you know, most of us that they're in this, in the guild, you talk to 30 people in a class, you know, a hundred people, if you get invited to speak. So then I email them, I'm like, do you want to talk to 15,000 people on a podcast? And they're like, well, how's that allowed? And I'm, you know, so I, I've kind of, the homebrewed Christianity was started with the idea that most people when they hear Christianity, think of something that is as disgusting as, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we think so too. You know, it's kind of like the really bad light beer that has no flavor in it. And I'm like, yeah, but the church, just like beer or wine or any kind of thing that's a craft has like, there actually is a giant palette of flavor. And, and, and most people when they hear beer think of Miller Light and it's kind of gross or Paps Blue Ribbon, um, which is tastes like chilled piss, you know? And, uh, it, it, and yet, there's be there's like high quality beer. And I was a crap like into homebrewing. And so my goal was not to tell everyone they should be processed theologians, though they should, but was to interview um, scholars from across different disciplines and different kind of schools of thought so that people can get the resources from the ivory tower into their earbuds and then can, you know, brew your own faith in scare quotes metaphorically, because the I think we need a more rich ecosystem of expressions of the diversity and multiplicity of Christianity. And I think there are a lot of people whose lived experience of life, uh, of faith in the spirit are ones where um, the history of the church and the diversity of voices in the present can really resonate and give traction and meaning and, 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 and really empower them. But so much of what's mass produced is kind of vapid, thin, and tasteless. So I wanted to use a podcast to, uh, you know, uh, introduce people to the stuff you get if you go to hang out in one of Grace's classes, you know, so that that was kind of the the mission. And I've kept doing it. Oh, wow. That is so good, because I think my first podcast interview that I did for anybody was on your podcast. So it was very memorable. I was scared to death about going on a podcast. And then now I'm hosting one, which is so incredible. I never thought I would like five years ago. But then after I did so many, and you made it look so easy, I said, why not? And I started it. And then I was like, I didn't realize how much work it is. <laughs> if Trip can do it, how hard can it be? You know, yeah, that's how I thought if Trip can do it, I can do it. 
But then you know what? It is so much work. So, and you make it so easy and you do so many episodes. So thank you for what you do because you reach out so many people and I'm grateful for what you did and what you are continuing to do. And also out of the Homebrewed Christianity podcast, you also did the Homebrewed Christianity book series. Yeah, do you have a favorite one? Do you have a favorite one, Grace? Do you have a favorite favorite volume? Like, Which one is it? No, which one's your favorite? I, I oh, was, which one's your favorite? My favorite? I thought yeah, you were saying I, my my volume was your favorite. <laughs> I, I was I was saying I was asking you, you know, so that you get to the opportunity without, you know, you can just say, I love the Holy Ghost. My favorite. <laughs> I don't know. I thought I thought we were. I thought you gave up reading reading too many Christologies. I thought I was. I thought what I liked about your book was you said, look. If you want to talk about Jesus, there's a giant reading list. <laughs> well, but if you want to talk what? about the Holy Spirit, the reading list isn't thick enough. We need to spend more time there. <laughs> you know, my first book was um, Grace of Sophia. And I said to myself, for the rest of my life, I'm going to do Christology. So when you invited me to write a book for your series, do you remember my email? I said, I'm going to do Christology. And then you said, no, 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 you're doing Christology. That's what you said that I'm doing so then I was really upset because I thought, then there's nothing else for me to do. And then you said, do spirit, because I was starting to do a little bit on spirit. And then actually, since then, I've never done any more Christology. <laughs> well, so basically what you're saying is I helped you break up with Jesus. That's... Maybe. And so, you know, <laughs> but then you brought me back again with this okay. book of yours, with all this constructive theology, Christology, the self divine investment. So if you have not read Tripp's book, um, I highly recommend it and, and order it for your divinity schools, your seminaries, even your churches, because I think it's quite interesting. And maybe you're bringing me back to Christ with this book. Well, always witnessing. <laughs> you are, you, you are a big witness for Christ. So thank you for doing that. So um, thank you for sharing about your homebrew Christianity. And for those who have not um, listen to Trip. I'm sure you all have. Please um, subscribe to his uh, Homebird Christianity podcast. Wonderful, excellent episodes. And the great thing about your episode is you're so diverse. You know, you you go out of your way to invite people of color, scholars of color. So I'm and, and women too. So I'm always grateful to you, Trip, for making your podcast so widely listenable and and watchable on Facebook too. So thank you for that. And even on YouTube. So let's get into this book. So what made you write this book after your first book on Jesus for the homebrew Christianity series? Well, so I had uh, written my proposal for my dissertation and then got offered the, to do the book series at Fortress and you get paid to write those books and you don't get paid to write your dissertation. So I wrote the other one first and then wrote this one. Okay. Um, but so this I one would, comes from your dissertation then? It, yeah, yeah. It started it, and there's, you know, I guess about two thirds of it is related to things in dissertation. There's a chapter I cut out that I was uninterested in that made the dissertation. Um, and I, I, I rewrote large sections so that if you, in hopes that if you weren't an academic, I would introduce each of the thinkers I'm engaging with to see why they're so animating if you're not a super nerd. And if you aren't, you can also read the last section and the first section of each chapter and figure out the book. Uh, that was the, um, <laughs> the end. But the, the book itself to me was, I have... Uh, I find the idea, so many of our Christological, uh, um, so many of the Christological commitments have been uh, packed full of theological ideas about God, I find problematic, like um, be it dualism, uh, like mind-body dualism, or uh, divine intervention and omnipotence, or a kind of classical theist picture of God and the world as separate, uh, a, a whole bunch of things. And one of the common criticisms to uh, Christian panentheists or open and relational theologians are like, well, once you have a, pan, a panentheistic vision where, where God and the world are, are mutually uh, impacting each other, 
in the flux and movement of history, then you can't really have a Christology. Maybe Jesus is a good teacher that tells you some cool stuff or is the is a parable of God or whatever, but you can't have it like an actual incarnation and Jesus can't really be a self-revelation of God or reveal to us God's hope in the world. And I'm like, well, why not? And so this book was uh, built where I presume um, an open and relational theological vision and then go through the kind of major areas of Christology, like a spirit Christology, a Logos Christology, one that begins with the work of Jesus. And I take an open and relational thinker and a American liberal theologian who is critical of open and relational thinkers and then read them together and do constructive work. And I, I was really wanting to show that the open and relational perspective doesn't necessitate a deflationary Christology um, and can be uh, a more vibrant expression of liberal Christology in America. So that was the. That was how you began. And so I'm grateful <laughs> for it. I, I just wanted to read a quote. It says for Chris, this is what you write for Christians. The answer to the question, who is God required telling the story of Jesus, what Jesus said, did endured and delivered definitely shaped the Christian life and the community's understanding of God. So how then does this all kind of work together, the open and relational Christology, and then you do do the other, you know, I love the chapter on the spirit Christology. So how does this all work? How do we understand who God is through um, Jesus versus, you know, for me, I've, as you said, I broke up with Jesus. <laughs> I'm still with Jesus, but, you know, but, you know, moving more with the spirit. So how, how does it happen and how does it work? For us. Well, well, I, you know, I think part of the, the, like part, part of the difficulty is that when we get to doing theology in the 20th century, it's been really shaped by um, the, the post-Holocaust responses in kind of Anglo theology. And there are two big emphases that, that really shape Christology. One is that we have to pay attention to the historical Jesus because the Nazis didn't. They started killing Jewish people, and Jesus is Jewish, right? Like, those are real things. And then the historical Jesus connected to that then problematizes us reading the Gospels as if they all agree and are harmonious and give one clear theological picture. So then what do you do with that? And that occasions all the Christologies from below or the the Christologies based on the cross and divine suffering of Jesus on the cross and that kind of thing. And the other one is what is uh, the challenge of revelation. One of the other critiques from the Bardians and company are, no, you don't get to tell God who God is. God tells you, and it's through God's self-testimony in the history of Israel and the person of Jesus. Um, and so it's it, like you want to go, okay, and what is the medium for God's relationship to Israel and our encounter with Christ? It's religion, which is a historical phenomenon in community that's situated knowledge and like all that kind of stuff. And so it needed to get more dirty in a sense. It needed to get more embodied. And I and so when you look at those challenges to, to affirm, right, God's self-testimony in the person of Jesus and the history of Israel and all that kind of stuff and affirm God's presence in the person Jesus in the history of Israel from uh, and not turn into a contemporary Marcionite and all that kind of stuff, then the open and relational theological perspective is one where in every moment, God, uh, and this is the image of the book, invests God's self in the world. God, God and us receive the past, and we can't change it. And in that moment, God gives possibilities, valuated towards God's deepest desires, and the, and the creatures respond in the best way possible, hopefully, towards the most beautiful, good, true type of thing. But um, in that open relational perspective, temporality, the movement and flux of history, is the very place God gives God's self. Then, then the question for understanding Jesus then is, uh, in that open relational perspective, uh, is the life of Jesus, the fully human life of Jesus in his fidelity to the one he calls Abba, like how does that fully human life express, reveal, and make present God? So the self-investment image in the book is that it's through Jesus's full fidelity 
to God, that you start to get a reciprocity. Um, or you could say he becomes the image of the invisible God precisely by being uh, faithful to the one who gives the possibilities in a moment, the uh, person Jesus becomes the image of the invisible God. Uh, and, and then you have incarnation. You can, of all those, you could go through all the Pauline images or the Deuteropauline images of high cosmic Christologies and say them metaphysically uh, in this perspective. And you get those um, because God is the one who gives God self every moment and then honors the dignity and agency of creation and doesn't coerce it or force it. And so what does it look like when you get, when God's gift of God's self to the world uh, is received completely? It looks like the fusion of wills between Jesus and the one he calls Abba. Uh, and in the book, that divine self-investment is, is a way of understanding the incarnation in a deep and robust embodied Sarks-filled way without the incarnation being divine invasion, be it in Mary, adoption, at baptism, or partitioning the personhood of Jesus. Uh, and, and, and what I want to do is to go the open and relational vision actually gives us a way to affirm the cacophony of images about Christ in the scriptures and the narratives, while at the same time recognizing a lot of those problems that we've uh, are starting to deal with um, coming out of the 20th century. Wow. When you were speaking, like all these thoughts and ideas, and I didn't want to interrupt you. Oh, you but should. What? You should. Oh, I, no, I, no, no, I'm no. not you good at short answers. No, no, no. I love these long answers. So you make me think more. So one of them was that, uh, you know, Jesus uh, reveals the invisible God. And I really like that because um, the new book I'm, uh, that's coming out called Invisible, I, at the end, I do a theology of visibility, and, mm -hmm. that, and I do talk about the invisible God. So that was quite interesting. The other thing I wanted to ask you as you were speaking is, you know, now in the 20th century, so you, you said we have to emphasize the historical Jesus, which I agree. I think without looking at the historical Jesus, there's going to be a lot of problems. But, you know, in the church, in the pews today, women make up a large part of the pews and now many denominations are allowing women to become ordained pastors so we have ministers and leaders teachers who are women so my always problem when i even when i did grace of sophia when i wanted to do christology for the rest of my life how do we overcome this problem of this maleness of the divine especially if jesus makes visible the invisible god how how are we like, what do you say to women uh, in light of the Me Too movement and all these problems that women continue to face, you know, getting paid less in the workforce still, mm -hmm. uh, lots of discrimination, sexism, assault, you know, verbal, physical assault. How do we welcome women into the church? Uh, you know, when we can't throw away the historical Jesus, but then Jesus does make visible the invisible god so mm -hmm. teach me trip <laughs> i mean i think there's two i mean there's two two things that come immediately to mind mm -hmm. one is and this was elizabeth johnson the catholic uh feminist theologian said well well you know to get an incarnation where um the most of humanity's uh um in included uh well then you would need a guy because only a woman could birth God, right? Because like, that's just not a live option for uh, mm -hmm. a certain biological reproduction. And, and I think that's important. And the issue, like in one sense, the tradition that venerates Mary has a higher hierarchy problem in ways, but not as much at the piety level. And the, and Protestants who, because they were spent a lot of time not being Catholic have abandoned the fact that early church piety was dramatically shaped by uh, Mary, both Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, and, and so I think that that recognition is important. But the other thing I would just say is from the very early church, every time someone was baptized, they're baptized into the living body of Christ. Right? And this is something I try to make emphasize in the book. And I, I do it more, I think, in the homebrewed book on Jesus is it 
if you just pay attention to the New Testament, like, yes, the narratives of the Gospels are about the historical person Jesus through these theological lens. But if you read the rest of it, the body of Christ is the actual baptized body of the church. And if we just let Christ speak today, the experiences that we have to recognize as places of, of authentic testimony for what the body of Christ is doing, then that means we have to acknowledge, yes, the majority of the body of Christ today um, are mothers. Like that's just if you go to who goes to a church on Sunday, <laughs> the majority of the body of Christ are not like Anglo white dudes with all of our concerns. And I love them. I professionally love reading about things other white guys are into. And, and I just know having been a minister, that's just not what most of the congregation's interested in. It, <laughs> so like, if we acknowledge and have a robust ecclesiology, the body of Christ includes the lived experience of all of it. And then if we're a Christian, then the body of Christ that we attend to are the ones that bear crosses today. Right. And that's why the chapter that includes where Andrew Sung Park's reflections on Han are so important is that when we want to know where Christ is, Christ promises to be in three places in community where um, you tell the truth and grace abounds, where, like where two or three are gathered, that kind of thing, at the communion table where the most basic necessity is given to all. And then whenever the least of these are present. And, and I, and if we did that, if we took that seriously, right, we would not be able to do Christian theology and ignore the lived experience of half the species or the, the underside, right? And so, um, and so like the particularity of Jesus in, in the book is used to say God has chosen sides with the underside of history. God has chosen to embrace the fullness of 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 uh, of not just Jesus's own body right but in John it's the sarks like all material existence God has deep solidarity with and so to be faithful as Jesus was faithful as the body of Christ then we too have deep solidarity with the underside and we too have our identity and mission and values shaped by their experience just as God's values and identity has been shaped by the crucified one. And, and so, and I think a lot of those insights make perfect sense if you read the New Testament and they make sense in an open and relational perspective. But a lot of the ideas of God, the pictures of perfection that became dominant when the church became, uh, started riding shotgun with imperial power, meant we came up with theology that made it okay. Like, even if you think of, you know, recently leaving Afghanistan in which great, I think we should end wars, but, um, you know, Joe Biden's like randomly quoting a Bible verse <laughs> at, and followed by like, we're going to get you. And you're like, no, we just had 20 years. We killed uh, 50,000 kids in Afghanistan in the last 20 years because 3000 people died. Like, in, in 9-11, there's like, it doesn't meet basic just war things, right? Like, so to use a Bible verse, it, it, that, the, that only works because you know when people hear Bible verse, they think imperial, hierarchical, patriarchal, militaristic, nationalistic vibes correlate to the crucified cross-dead one. The people of the cross bearer cannot be cross builders and be faithful. And yet our image of God's been so occupied by Caesar and his lawyers that we then start to do Christology based on their image of divine perfection. And so the open and relational framework's a critique of that. And so I'm trying to harness the imagery of the New Testament, the, the ideas, the stories, what Jesus said, did, and endured, and then go, how can I tell, uh, wrestle with this in a constructive way and not have to put my head in shame when I look at the crucified people of the present and those that are dying uh, generations from now because we can't get off fossil fuel and can't imagine living on less for the benefit of others 
and I mean, I don't have to tell you all these things, but no, like, no, keep telling. But I think your question's so important, right? And so if, if you can look at the body of Christ today and think patriarchy is a reasonable option, then I think you've missed it. But that's only because you isolate the maleness of Jesus to preserve God's actual self-testimony in Jesus, namely solidarity with the oppressed and the underside. And so it's just, it's like antichrist with a Jesus sticker. And I, I don't know. It's not, it's not inspiring. I don't know who wants to give their life to it, but uh, I want a gospel that's beautiful and is good news to the people I don't know how to be good news to yet. Mm-hmm. And so, the, so that was kind of at the heart of the book was mm-hmm. what's a Christology that invites us into radical discipleship where our grandkids won't be embarrassed about us. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I haven't heard you preach, but I felt like you were just <laughs> preaching away. So that was so great. But I think, you know, what you just touched on with Afghanistan and so forth is so true. You know, we have built this Christian nationalism here in the U.S. and we use it to colonize and to go into war and kill and take. So I think what you're trying to do in the book is so important and relevant to us today. Um, the, one of my favorite lines in your book was, um, Christology is not a spectator doctrine. And, you know, I teach intro to theology and I, you know, we go through these doctrines and I always viewed it like the way you wrote it, but it was so moving to me that it's not a spectator doctrine. So I, I so agree with you. Can you just expand what you mean there for our listeners who may not be familiar with this? I think it's like the most powerful thing I've read like this year, just that one sentence, because it means so much to me. So please expand and, yeah. and share with us. So, uh, and, and I initially said that when I was teaching theology and got irritated in class when I taught systematic <laughs> the first time, because it was Christology, which I was super pumped about. And everyone had read John Sabrino and Wolfhart Pannenberg. And I'm like, oh, I love both these things. I'm, I'm super excited. And and I was like, no, Christology is not a spectator doctrine. And, and I realized that in modernity, the kind of knowing that is privileged, especially for us academics, it's a type of disengaged knowing. It, the perfect model science, right? Like it should be reproducible no matter where it is. Well, Jesus does not invite us into knowing God in a way that's generically reproducible, no matter where it is. In fact, like in the very same congregation or the same small group, one person gives their testimony and the next one does, and they don't sound the same. And that's why, you know, they might be true, right? It's a kind of engaged knowing. And so Jesus um, even does this in a scene I pick up at the beginning and end of the book where he, he asks the disciples, well, who do the people say I am? And he goes, Oh, well, some say you're Elijah. You came back down. He didn't die previously. Maybe you're back trying to let everyone know it's the day of the Lord. Or maybe you're John the Baptist. God zipped your head back on because it got cut up, you know, and they start going through all these like reasonable things that real people that met the actual historical Jesus could have thought. And then he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus does not go, thank you, Pete the evidence demands a verdict. I'm glad you recognize that Isaiah 53 was about my future impending death, which functions as penal substitutionary. Like he doesn't say the recognition of him as the Christ is obvious. It was a gift of faith. And, and I think so many people when they do Christology are imagining that it, that it works like the real Christians here and this atheist person's on the other side and they're yelling at each other and trying to prove to each other something that's obvious. And I go like the text witnesses against it. Jesus doesn't say it's dumb to think he's a good teacher or he's John the Baptist or Elijah. Those are live options. The people met historical Jesus could think well, the recognition he's a Christ means that you've actually become a disciple. The disciples are ones that have said, 
like, despite all these other ways of engaging you, I'm giving myself to be your follower. And then what happens in Pete's life? He gets the answer, right? Jesus is the Christ and then gets the definition of it wrong. So a few chapters later, Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah and Moses show up, you know, the law and the prophets. And Pete's like, this is amazing. Let's all hang out. Wants to build a booth. Jesus is like, no, we're going to go to Jerusalem now. And Pete's like, whoa, dude, you do know if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you, right? Like, I don't want to be your PR agent, but you're not doing great. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like, you don't get what I'm doing. Like, the entire mission is to go and face the powers and not use their weapons, right? Like, this is what is going on. And and so I think the spectator version of Christology is debating, do we get the label right? The engaged one invites us into that messy, complicated situation Peter had, where he knew and trusted Jesus, but he didn't even get that Jesus being the Christ meant going to Jerusalem. And then he didn't get after the resurrection that he could actually be trusted to lead people. And then in Acts, he didn't get that the spirit descending on Gentiles really meant you could become a follower of Jesus without getting snipped, right? Like Peter had that messy, complicated journey of saying yes over and over to this radical way, even that didn't fit in his imagination, but he did it because it wasn't a spectator thing to him. It was figuring out how to say yes to Christ. And that is so different than figuring out a way to have a syllogism to prove people something's true. To say Jesus is the Christ is closer to a, po- a love poem than a syllogism. And I think when we get that, we realize how uh, this doctrine isn't about a stack of ideas that if you do it right, everyone goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a stack. It's a way of interpreting and receiving the tradition to help us understand poetically and metaphorically um, what's getting itself done in the most beautiful parts of the life of the church. And when we trust those pictures, it's the very presence of God. It inspires us to live lives of faithfulness. And sometimes that faithfulness means, like Peter, you have to go, oh, I was a bit smitten with a picture of power that's the Antichrist. Maybe the church should say that. Or you go, oh, I was a bit smitten with my ideas of power, and I realized I failed. I don't know if I'm worthy to still lead. I think the church needs people that know they failed and lead a different way. Or I was very clear that the boundaries of the church were here, and now even though the boundaries I was committed to are in the Bible, right? Gentiles can't be in the church. Um, the Holy Ghost is saying, that's stupid, right? And I got to change my mind. Pete gives us a model of what this Christology as uh, a real engaged doctrine look like. And it means we can leave behind our failures in the past and move to different fidelity. It means we can leave behind commitments to perverse power. It means we can leave behind our commitments to us versus them and trust the actual presence of God in a new growing multiplicity and diversity of expressions of embodied existence. Um, anyway, that, yeah. yeah so that, thank you. You're just so brilliant. So thank you, uh, Trent, for expanding on that about the spectator because I think it's so powerful and I think we need to kind of engage and not just sit back uh and and just kind of watch what's happening can I ask you a question yes okay so Uh I mean I know you drew out that line do you how would you how would you describe the way in which the task of academic theology can kind of uh, blunt the prophetic and really beautiful parts of the tradition. Like, because we act like spectators in a classroom or when we write text and all that kind of stuff, how do you negotiate that tension? Cause I, I, I think you do a real beautiful job of figuring it out. And uh, I, I never know. I, like I, you said, I've snapped into preacher mode. I do that. And if I'm not in that mode, then I feel like I'm sterile, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, that was a good preacher mode. I think it's really difficult because 
Western education requires all these certain things, you know, these seminaries are under ATS regulation, but I think you can kind of bring it in by, you know, you know, much of my work also lies in the uh, liberation theology with the praxis. So if we emphasize the praxis and emphasize that it doesn't just stop there, but it, you know, we've got to read the rest of the Bible. We got to read how, you know, God requires of us to do certain things, then I think it will motivate students to think that way and not just be a spectator. But as you said earlier, yeah, many of us are just trained to just teach students to become the spectator, but I think we really need to challenge them. So I do require, you know, bits and pieces in either their uh, evaluations or papers to kind of how would they do things differently kind of mode of asking questions. I think that's important to do this practical aspect because once they leave seminary, once they leave divinity school, they are required to do and act. And so, you know, it's not just this head knowledge that we want them to acquire. It is also engaging and reflecting and, and how we become the body of Christ that you talked about so eloquently earlier. So I really appreciate that. So actually that then leads me to ask, you know, you're, you're talking about open and relational constructive Christology, God self-investment, how God self-invests, et cetera. So, and you also talk about how God refuses to be God without us. I think that's so powerful. So what does that mean when you kind of state that God refuses to be God without us. Yeah, so, you know, there's, I guess there's two places that connects. And I think the main one for open and relational theologians is that uh, our experience of temporality is not tangential to who God is. Now, if you just have read the Bible, this isn't surprising. You read the Bible, God makes covenants, and then goes back and forth with whether or not the people God loves and committed to are committed to God. And they keep working and growing and understanding each other more over time, right? That means time, temporality, is really essential to who Yahweh is in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, if you read the Gospels, other maybe John, um, the actual life of Jesus is real important. Like uh, Jesus meets the Syrophoenician woman. At that point in the narrative, he still, even though he understands his messianic uh, identity, he doesn't think it has to do with the Gentiles. And the Syrophoenician woman goes, hey, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And in the book, I say Jesus was catching up to being the Christ. Why? Because he hadn't been in that place. It was not part of his imagination. He did inherit from his mom. And if you read the Magnificat, this prophetic Jewish identity, right? But there he realizes, what if the boundaries, uh, e even the most progressive ones in a sense he inherited, are not big enough for the actual God he's encountered, right? And who helps him learn it? A Syrophoenician woman. And so in the, in the, in the book, I want to go, um, if you're in an open relational perspective, it's not whether your content and your conclusions are perfect. It's whether your faithfulness in response is. And so Jesus being faithful means growing and learning, right? And that means the temporality of his own life can be the image of the invisible God. Like part of the way you envi envision God is faithfully responding and growing. And so the, 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 when you then get to the ideas of God, if God's refused to be God without us, that's, uh, um, if you take that to the macro, a lot of people imagine God looking at history like it's a book. God wrote the whole thing. And then is sitting there and going, you know what? I'm going to sarcastically do Karl Barth. I, out of my free loving decision, have decided to create today. And then this one act of creation, I'm not only willing creation, but also it's redemption. So it's one big yes. Here it is. Right. Like, and, and, uh, or C.S. Lewis gives the image of the book, right? Like we're experiencing God, the cursor of history, but for God outside of time, it's already settled and God knows it. And God's determined it or permitted it because God's omnipotent. So it's all settled. Anyway, God was either the editor or the author. Um, and open and relational theologians are like, yeah, what, wh how bloody does history have to get that you call into question God's love 
based on the kill count, right? Like I know that's a snarky way of putting it, but I, the, all that to say like the God outside of history things problematic. But if the Bible says God's like going through it with us, right? Trying to be faithful. If the, if the incarnation is God's deep solidarity all the way to the cross, then what happens if God's refused to be God without us? And at either at the decision to create um, or God in the world or co-eternal, that's a debate and open relational thought. But at when the emergence of reciprocating responsive cognitive uh, conscious life emerges, that God is in that actual process with us. That means that uh, history in the flux of existence isn't separate from who God is. God's chosen to invest God's self in, say, 13.8 billion years. There's a quantum fluctuation in, our, in a vacuum. This is our current cosmology that's dominant. And then you have like the cosmological constants start to function in ways that they become generative. And then what we call solid state physics emerges. And then you got a number of dead stars and you got the cosmological constant, things like gravity. And then uh, you get a periodic table to build chemistry wise. And then you get in certain conditions, biological life emerges. And then in certain ones that we don't know, um, but at least on our planet, ones that can make eye contact, hold babies, listen to symphonies and say, I forgive you happen, right? Like you get to that whole thing. And if you are thinking open and relational, temporality is part of God. God's been invested in this thing the whole time to bring about part of creation that can look and know itself as known and loved by God. And then what's God desire for that creation to say yes back to the love that's been there the whole time, right? So God's refused to be God without us. Don't count out the whole cosmic history as something tangential and just part of some book God's chilling out till it gets to the humans later. No, the whole thing is part of who God is. And then in the middle of that, what do you discover about the divine? That God has decided to include right through the incarnation, death, resurrection, what Jesus said, didn't endure, all that kind of stuff. It, it, not just the idea that God loves and cares about us, but that in the very heart of God, the life of Jesus exists in a revelatory way. What does it reveal? A solidarity with the underside. What does it reveal? An invitation for those of power to use their privilege, wealth, possessions differently. What does it invite us into? Uh, the kingdom of God. Um, that, but what else does it show us? That God knows both sides of the cross. God knows what it's like to die feeling abandoned by the one they loved. But God also knows what it's like to be the parent and not knowing what to do when your child dies unjustly. And if that's in the life of God, and if God has chosen to continue to invest God's self all the way to the cross, then God's refused to be God without us. And that means even on our best and our worst days, God knows our name, knows our face and cares. And that's true about us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our enemies, and our non-human neighbors, friends, and enemies. And that is beautiful. And it's not tangential to God. It's not set in the book and set aside. It's the very place, the movement of God in the world and the dance of love until all things have been brought into the divine embrace happens. And so the refusal of God to be without us means that God's not walking away because it's not a book God's setting down, but it's also not one that God's already has the end settled because the end doesn't become an end without you, me, and our enemies. And that is only possible if the image of love in Jesus, one that refuses to build crosses and bears them, creating space, and at the same time insisting on solidarity and recognition of the harm and pain and injustice of those who bear crosses today, that, that you need both of those uh, in order for it to go. And so that, that, it, that image of God refusing to be God without us in the book, when I talk about the Han of God, is to say that salvation isn't just something we need, a solution for the victim and the violator. It's also something God needs, because for God to be the God of love, then I don't know, you could say God was like a woman who lost a coin and searched until it was found, and only then did God have a party. Or you could say, you know, like you could go into the, 
the parables in Luke. Um, and, and those aren't, that's not a weird picture. And I'm just saying, I mean, my other, the thing, I would do lots of religion science stuff. I'm saying there's a com, the completely coherent and plausible metaphysical picture and that, that connects to this. But I think it's actually a more faithful expression of what Jesus said, did, and endured. I think it gives a more invitational and inspiring picture of Pauline language. And I think one of the reasons the church hesitates uh, is because our commit, our image of God isn't Christian enough. And so what we want to say God's perfect is a God who could be God without us. And I'm saying that if God's self-testimony, see, this is a playback on by if God tells you who God is, and it's in a homeless first century Jew, then the idea you get to finish the question, who is God, without all those who that incarnating solidarity includes, then I just don't think it works. And so, you know, anyway. That's yeah. the, uh... No, that's that's so helpful for all of us, I think, because um, you are trying to describe, you know, what is more helpful rather than what has been done and has been very destructive for us. So you also mentioned Han and you mentioned um, Andrew Sun Park, and I would love to talk with you all day long and pick your brain because this, I think it's a very important book. Uh, but to, like one of the last questions I wanted to ask is um, how do we understand this the question of evil and suffering and help us also then tie that in with religion and science because that is also what you're doing there um, as a postdoc fellow. So how does this all work together? Because you do mention Anderson Park. And for those listeners, Han is a Korean word, H-A-N, which um, you know, any word from a different language is very difficult to translate. So what one we try to translate is this unjust suffering. So we know that there's a lot of suffering in the world, but then there's also these unjust suffering. The people that died that you mentioned, trip earlier, uh, all those kids in Afghanistan, that is Han, that is unjust suffering. That should not have happened. When a woman is raped, that is unjust suffering. Women should not be raped, et cetera, et cetera. So how you, you bring it in. So how does this all kind of fit in and then tie it in and wrap it up with the religion and science, which is your area now? So if I don't get the science, remind me, but the easiest way of saying what the concept of Han gives, what the normal framework of salvation in the West is that in the West salvation has been so has been occupied by the guilt of the oppressor. The oppressor wants to know that they're lovable and they want to know that their guilt is something God can forgive. And so when we look at our, our anthropology, right. And this is the feminist critique of Augustine, not that there aren't plenty of people that prides the main problem, but there are also people who uh, don't have the pride that is the dignity of bearing the image of God, right? And so the, the, uh, the, the predicament is one that one hasn't even asserted the self that you were given. Um, and in that bit of just the feminist critique of Augustine gets expanded when you get to talking about salvation. Um, if you think of who is the preacher, when you hear salvation stories run through everyone's head, it's going to be Billy Graham and people imitating him, right? And, uh, and I know plenty of theologians that had wonderful experience with Billy Graham. And if you showed up and heard Billy preach and wanted to know whether God actually loved you because you weren't good enough in some, like, because you failed or, or hurt someone or lied or cheated or were, felt guilty about, you know, whatever, then he made it really clear that the love of God in Christ Jesus will forgive anything. I, I, he's brought murderers up on the stage, that kind of thing. Yeah. But the Western concept of salvation is been so focused on that. We left out those who've been sinned against those who are oppressed, those who are victims. We're worried about solving guilt, but we don't deal with shame and the beautiful thing for me about Han, like what it opened up was this recognition that the story of scripture is more focused on how God has solidarity with those who bear Han, ones who the acts of injustice aren't just things that need to be forgiven, they're wounds that need to be healed, right? And so 
um, you can have something done against you. You could forgive the person, but the way that sinning against you impacts you and shapes you requires healing that forgiveness in and of itself doesn't deal with. Um, and if the gospel makes more sense to the violator than the victim, then it's not big enough. And that, and this is unrelated, right? Like it doesn't mean God doesn't forgive David for raping Bathsheba. It's just that if you tell the gospel, it needs to make space for Bathsheba being a victim of patriarchal hierarchical like violence. And um, too often we don't do that. And so the, that Han in, in the book is not something we have, but God has. And that's expressed through Jesus, not just in his ministry, having solidarity with what Andrew Sung Park calls the Han ridden people, but that through the cross, God internalizes Han. Is to say that when we talk about the gospel, a gospel that doesn't address Han isn't good news yet. Mm-hmm. And I think the West has been so occupied by the oppressor's need to be forgiven that when the oppressed is left off the gospel menu, you say, it doesn't actually open up an invitation for redress, reconciliation, and a movement towards a a more holistic picture of justice. You forgive someone, and then they go back to a system that continues to implant violence on the poor, the planet, the oppressed, and that kind of thing. Um, And I just, I... You know, the easiest examples, right, are those systemic ones. But I just think that a if you look at the best statistics in America, 30% of white men have been sexually assaulted before they become adults. And as a minister, I can tell you that's very true. And that means that those people who've been shaped bear the shame of sexual violence, don't have a gospel that can speak to it. So what do they do? Keep it in the closet, let it fester, and it comes out elsewhere. But they do have a way of dealing, of bringing where that violence comes out later into the church and be forgiven. So I I think that so many of us bear burdens because our shame is not the very place that God's healing desires to be present. And that the gospel is just as much about the healing of shame, the sharing of burdens, as it is about the forgiveness of sin and the, the you know, relinquishing of guilt. Um, yeah, sorry, that, that was a, a detour, I think, but... Um, Thank you. I think that's important. I'm glad you were able to touch on Han and Han ridden people and the assault that's happening and the unjust suffering that is all over the place and tying it in with the guilt. So if you can just say a few words about religion and science, and then we can wrap up today's episode. Did you want to oh, say yeah. a bit more? Yeah. Oh, I would just, I just say, uh, oh, here's a hot take. This is unrelated to anything I've said. The, the open relational framework is coherent with contemporary religion science stuff, but I don't, outside of the opening, and I give a broad account of it, I just go like, it is a big deal to me that it coheres with mm-hmm. like uh, internally consistent account related to science. But I would say a lot of theologians don't talk about God because they don't understand science and then they feel Un, uncomfortable talking about God. Um, and I also think uh, the religion science issue for most in most congregations is more a pastoral care question than a theology one. That because a whole bunch of people in churches have had experiences with the living and life-giving God and then are live in a world where what's assumed is a kind of reductive materialism and they want to know if they can trust those experiences and not be dumb. And I'll just say, like, you can. Mm. But if you want to know about it, there are some amazing scholars that have multiple PhDs in every issue. And, uh, you know, 
it's at some point I have a book come out that's like me and a bunch of neuroscientists and cognitive scientists talking about consciousness and stuff. And if that like if you need to know all that in order to trust your encounter with God in Christ, then like I'll tell you about it. But the I, I think there is this cultural assumption because we are so addictive to the kind of power you get through science and the kind of certainty detached knowing has that we then privilege that. And what it does is it bifurcates nature and it bifurcates humans. And when we only lift up half of it, the other sides create problems. The ecological crisis is an example where that bifurcation, right? Like we look at nature and how we can quantify it, possess it, determine it, control it. But the qualitative relationship with nature gets exercised. We look at the self and then what do we have? We have all of our problems. If we can look at it under a microscope, if we can explain it and ex explain the why with objective certainty, oh, we can deal with that. But if you have all these things that don't make sense under those conditions, we repress, deny, distrust, have suspicion about them. And I just think one of the things a lot of the scholars in religion and science make possible is the ability for one to trust more deeply their encounters with God and recognize that um, there are deep and faithful ways um, of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say, I only say reconciling the two because we culturally think religion and science are odds, but they're not, they're just, they're just not really, but they're amazing, cool things you can learn when you do the sciences and then ask really good theological questions. And the big shift in religion and science is to shift from the battle of the theists and the atheists trying to win, right? And then go, well, what if that battle, nor where you think you're harnessing facts, is actually something that exists in each of us? The it's not a battle line that's outside, that each of us are a believer and a skeptic at the same time. And then how do we relate to the big questions of faith and negotiate um, the, the uh, kind of engaged knowing of following Jesus, like the Peter example in his growth? And then how do you engage the big questions of science and how do they help us live uh, a more a, a thriving account of being human and are better neighbors and engaged in, na in nature better all that kind of stuff um I, it it i think it's really fun i just when i was a minister and was really into religion and science i realized when i was talking with a, a physics professor at ucla at the church i worked at in california he asked about divine action i'm like going through the options that you would get at an AAR session on religion and science. And he goes, oh, no, 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 I'm not really worried about that. I just want to know. So there is a way. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, a physicist, they're a Christian. They said, okay, that's cool. And I'm like, what? You know, <laughs> and it, and so sometimes scholars, because they get into it, think that they're now the arbiter of what is and isn't possible. Mm. And, uh, and that's why I'm excited about the new shift in science and religion is where it goes. What are the beautiful things different religious and spiritual traditions bring And what are ways this new kind of knowing gaining through science? Can they interact um, and, uh, and have a mutual transformative conversation? Yeah. Thank you so much Trip, for uh, spending time with me on Madame podcast. Um, you can read his book, his first book, Jesus, which is part of the homebrewed Christianity series. How many books are there? Six or seven? I can't remember, seven. but seven, seven. and yep. I'm part of that. So you can get the whole series or just get Tripp's book. It's um, talking about Jesus and the book today that um, uh, Tripp discussed, um, Divine Self-Investment, uh, published by Sacrosage. So I encourage you all to um, read his books and then also subscribe to his Homebrewed Christianity series podcast because it will be life-changing. Um, you know, today it was great that I got to interview him, but he gets to interview all very, very interesting people. So you must subscribe to his Homebrewed uh, Christianity series. Thank you so much, Tripp, for spending time with me. It was so wonderful. You know, we began by saying that when I was invited to write for your homebrewed Christianity series. I wanted to do Christology and you kind of made me divorce myself from Christology. But today, I think you almost converted me back to Christology. Okay. And I may one day write a book on Christology. I think 
it was, it's one thing to read your book, but it's another to hear you speak about it and be so excited about all these different topics. And I know we couldn't get to even half of what I wanted to, but thank you so much for spending time. And thank you for all the listeners for spending time with me on Madang Podcast. Thank you so much, Trip. This week's sponsor is Homebrewed Christianity's open online class, Oh God, What Now? Christianity 20 Years After 9-11, featuring Diana Butler Bass and Brian McLaren. It has been 20 years since 9-11 and the shape of Christianity continues to change at a daunting speed. That's why Homebrewed Christianity invited two of the most trusted and influential voices to explore the most pressing challenges and opportunities for the church. To learn more and join over 1,000 others in the group, head to ohgodwhatnow.net. Fortunately, this group is pay what you can, and you can join at any time to get the video and audio of each session. Mandy Ford is an artist and teacher specializing in hope-filled products, including stickers and art prints, digital and printable products, and creative courses to help your soul live a happier life. She is also the founder of Soul Care Creatives Club, a monthly membership club offering creative resources for soul care. Find out more at www.mandyford.co, follow her on her social media at Mandy Ford Art, and visit her shop at mandyfordart.etsy.com. Invisible, published by Fortress Press, is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Show your support and pre-order your copy today. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.